0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Affordable Housing Dashboard Illustrates Colorado's Struggles to Build Homes, by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Denver Public Schools Will Be Returning to In-Person Classes Next Week, by Paolo Ziolcita. And Denver Health's former public health director has a message about the pandemic. We Are Not Done With This, by Esteban L. Hernandez. From Westward, I'll be reading Appeals Filed Over Denver's Two Newest Safe Camping Sites by Connor mccormick Kavanaugh, and Something's Fishy About Mask Mandate Enforcement at Downtown Aquarium by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Affordable Housing Dashboard Illustrates Colorado's Struggles to Build Homes by Robert Davis. New data published by the Colorado Housing Finance Authority, CHFA, illustrates some reasons why Colorado struggles to build new homes. The Affordable Housing Development Cost Dashboard, which was published on December 10th, compiled data on the cost of housing development over the last five years. It compared the cost of both new construction and renovation projects that received funds from the 9% Low Income Housing Tax Credit, LIHTC, the 4% LIHTC, and state housing grants. Overall, the dashboard says Colorado has built 219 developments using federal tax credits over the last five years, with nearly 25% of that total coming in 2021 alone. The average per unit development cost over that time frame is $289,737, or $286 per square foot but the average cost per unit increased by 8% to $313,442, or $314 per square foot, in 2021. Katherine Grosscup, CHFA's Housing Tax Credit Manager, told Denver Voice that the increase is due to several market factors such as growing labor and supply expenses. This is not unique to affordable housing, as the same cost increases affect market-rate housing development. But the more expensive affordable housing becomes to develop, the more subsidy is needed to make projects feasible to develop and operate, Grosscup said. One of the main reasons why it's so expensive to build homes in Colorado is the state's labor market. In 2021, Colorado's state minimum wage increased to $12.32 per hour, and it will increase again in 2022 to approximately $12.56 per hour due to inflation. When labor costs are combined with other expenses, such as the price of lumber and other construction materials, the dashboard says these costs can make up as much as 56% of a project's total funding, or more than $161,000 per unit on average. According to the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, the situation may get worse in the near term. CDLE's industry projections estimate that, that the state's construction industry will grow by just 2.1 percent through 2023, ranking it below industries like agriculture and educational services. While the statewide housing shortage is impacting nearly every Coloradan, CHFA's dashboard shows that the cost of development varies greatly by region. For example, Denver received federal subsidies for 138 projects at an average development cost of more than $308,000 per unit, compared to the 73 other projects throughout the state that received subsidies at an average cost of $237,000 per unit. GrossCup said the federal subsidy that developers choose can also influence their project's total cost. According to the dashboard, 174 developers in Colorado that use federal subsidies received the 4% low-income housing tax credit, LIHTC, over the last five years. The dashboard also explained projects that received the 4% LIHTC carried an average total development cost north of $287,000 as well. For comparison, just 68 projects received the 9% LIHTC, which is designed to reach deeper affordability, Grosscup said. These projects also carry a higher total development cost at more than $313,000 per unit and typically serve families making up to 60% of an area's median income. Projects that receive the 9% LIHTC and reach deeper affordability levels also tend to carry higher development costs because they often include special provisions, such as supportive services, trauma-informed designs, and tend to be in non-metro areas, Grosscup said. However, developments supported by housing tax credits, no matter the type of credit, can serve a range of incomes and needs along the spectrum. These are more common characteristics of those supported with 9% credits, Grosscup added. As examples of developments that serve a range of income types, GrossCup points to the Valor on the Fax and the AVI in Old Town Arvada. CHFA awarded the AVI a 4% LIHTC to develop more than 100 affordable units, including 30 units for youths aging out of foster care. Similarly, the Valor on the Fax received a 9% LIHTC and will provide 72 units of affordable rent- rental housing, to homeless families and individuals, specifically those living with brain injuries or related disabilities. According to GrossCup, this is not the first time the agency has published data on this topic. The last time CHFA released similar data was in 2015. But GrossCup said the data is still often requested by stakeholders and developers, which led to CHFA developing this first-of-its-kind public dashboard. CHFA seeks to provide affordable housing data and information when possible and we're excited to offer this latest resource grosscup said the next two articles are from denverite denver public schools will be returning to in-person classes next week by paolo ziolcita students attending denver public schools colorado's largest school district will be back in the classroom next tuesday for the upcoming semester despite the continued surge of the Omicron variant. In a letter to DPS families, Superintendent Alex Marrero said he's confident the existing health precautions in place are enough to protect students, staff, and families. DPS has a very high vaccination rate among staff, and the COVID-19 vaccine is now available for everyone ages 5 and older, he said in the letter. We also strongly encourage everyone who is eligible to get a booster shot. While all city employees are required to get vaccinated against COVID-19, students are not. Masks are required for all students, staff, and visitors, regardless of vaccination status. The decision to continue with in-person learning was met with the blessing of Colorado health officials, according to Marrero. We know in-person instruction and support are critical for the overall well-being of our students, Our plan is in line with the recommendation from the health experts who have been our partners throughout the pandemic, Marrero said. Marrero also said to expect revised quarantine and isolation guidelines based on new CDC guidance. This week, the CDC changed the recommended quarantine period for people who test positive for COVID-19 from 10 days to 5. The district, comprising 207 schools, will not mandate testing before returning for the new semester. However, district officials are encouraging families to get regularly tested. DPS students are eligible for free tests through COVID Check Colorado. Colorado and the rest of the United States is currently experiencing a sharp rise in coronavirus cases due to the spread of the Omicron variant, which was first discovered in Denver days before Christmas. Denver Health's former public health director has a message about the pandemic. We are not done with this by Esteban L. Hernandez. If you live or work in Denver, you've more than likely encountered Dr. Bill Berman's work. Berman spent the last 10 plus years leading the public health arm of Denver Health, the city's safety net hospital, and among his duties was making recommendations on public health orders in the city, like the one currently requiring you to wear a mask indoors. Berman stepped down from his role this month. On his last day of the job, Berman sat down with us to talk about the ongoing pandemic, the impact of the new variant, and the work he will continue to do on a part-time basis for the hospital where he's worked since 1995. His outgoing message about the pandemic is a sobering one especially in light of comments Governor Jared Polis made to CPR News earlier this month about the pandemic being over as an emergency. We are not done with this, period, Berman said. There is no doubt we are not done with this. And so maybe the governor meant something different, but we were and are concerned about any messaging which says, in some way, we're through with this. We are not. He noted that the Omicron variant is more contagious than previous variants. One thing I think we can be absolutely certain about is it is more transmissible, and not a little bit, a lot, Berman said about Omicron, which was detected in Denver earlier this month, prior to this interview. Omicron is raising concerns about potential spikes in hospitalizations, and one way Denver Health is preparing is making sure hospital beds are used appropriately. One of the major challenges this hospital faces, and I'm sure it's true for other hospitals, is difficulty transferring patients out who no longer need an acute hospital bed level of care, he said. Another area of focus for the hospital will be monitoring the mental health of its staffers. A potential new wave is discouraging, Berman said. One way the hospital is trying to make sure they pay attention to its staff's well-being is through a program called Resilience in Stressful Events, or RISE, which provides free and confidential counseling sessions. As for the general public's response to the new variant, Berman suggests going back to the basics. Make sure you're vaccinated, and if you're already vaccinated, get a booster. He said to think carefully about your holiday plans to try and reduce the risk of transmission. Consider smaller groups and meeting outside. In some ways, Berman's research into HIV has helped him navigate the pandemic. When Berman was offered the job as public health director in 2011, he wasn't interested. He said he was comfortable in the clinical field, but he agreed to take on the role and quickly realized he'd enjoy it. It was exciting to be in totally new areas to be doing things, having to learn things that I didn't know anything about. Childhood obesity, paternal child health, tobacco, substance use disorders, mental health, Berman said. It was and is initially uncomfortable, but then a great challenge to try to learn both the subject and the people. When the HIV pandemic started, Berman remembers hearing from patients who faced what he called inhumane treatment, including hospital staff members who would try and spend as little time as possible inside a room with an HIV-positive patient. He lauded the role activists played in this era, drawing attention to the condition and ensuring good treatment for people who were HIV-positive. It was a tremendous lesson of the need to work so much more closely with the community to have the true ground sense of what's happening, what's needed, what kind of research is needed, Berman said. It's an absolute requirement. You cannot respond to a pandemic like COVID if you haven't built bridges to parts of your community. Dr. Sarah Rowan, Associate Director of HIV and Viral Hepatitis Prevention at Denver Health, said Berman learned Spanish later in life and took regular lessons with a tutor to serve Spanish-speaking patients. He worked at the Tepeyac Community Health Center, overseeing their HIV program. Rowan saw him work at the clinic firsthand and said he served as a mentor for people at the hospital. He'll continue to conduct HIV research for the hospital on a part-time basis. I think he really stepped outside his life perspective for his patients, Rowan said. He set a good example of doing that. Berman also served as chief medical officer for the city, consulting regularly with the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment Executive Director Bob McDonald about the public health orders issued by the city during the pandemic. He's one of the sharpest public health professionals I've ever met, McDonald said in a statement to Denverite. What a huge asset he was to DDPHE, the region, and the state. He's very well known and respected, and he will be missed. Berman said the pandemic hasn't shown new problems in our society, but rather shown a light on them. To start, access to universal health care. Berman used free COVID-19 testing, which the city started offering last year as an example. Well, if you don't have health insurance, you have an understandable reluctance to be tested, Berman said. Even if somebody says it's free, is that really free? Why would we give away anything in America for health care? We don't generally. You're also concerned about is this going to then engender downstream costs if I test and I test positive? And so I think that's been a problem forever. And to me, COVID just shone the spotlight on the gaps in our care system when we don't have universal access to health care. It is way past time for us to do that. Berman was responsible for improving regional work between other metro area public health agencies, helping launch the Metro Denver Partnership for Health in 2013. The group has advocated for measures to combat the pandemic, including asking the governor to implement a statewide mask mandate and require vaccine passports for most indoor settings. That group used to meet once a month. It meets twice a week now. He said he's hopeful the group will continue to do good work. I leave with a sense of satisfaction, Berman said. There are always uncertainties, but I leave with a real sense of satisfaction. The following articles are from Westward. Appeals filed over Denver's two newest safe camping sites by Connor McCormick Kavanaugh. While the safe camping site model for people experiencing homelessness now has the full support of the city of Denver, service providers are still encountering opposition from residents who want to prevent the establishment of such facilities in their neighborhoods. What I'm concerned about is that it seems that there might be a small minority of oppositional people that have just decided on this as their strategy. It seems like if that is the case, whether or not the community supports it There might be people that put us through this process, says Cole Chandler, executive director of the Colorado Village Collaborative, which pushed the safe outdoor spaces concept and is currently running safe camping sites at Regis University and in parking lots at 780 Elati Street and 3815 Steel Street. On November 17th, 46 neighbors of the 780 Elati Street site, which hosts around 35 people, filed an appeal with the Board of Adjustment for Zoning Appeals challenging the city's issuance of a temporary use zoning permit to operate the safe camping site in a parking lot owned by Denver Health. On December 14th, three property owners who own land near the Steel Street site, which is set up on a city-owned parking lot and had just opened that day, filed an appeal of that permit. The site currently has about 33 residents. A hearing for the Alati Street Appeal is scheduled for January 18th, while the one for Steel Street is slated for February 15th. We do not intend to discuss the appeal in light of the upcoming hearing, says Jason Richardson, one of the residents who filed the Elati Street Appeal. That said, for the basis of the appeal, I would direct you to the appeal itself. In the appeal, neighbors cite concerns regarding second-hand smoke noise, odors, and light, as well as a possible decrease in adjacent property value. They are also worried about safety. The appeal notes that people with convictions for violent crimes or sexual offenses could be eligible to live at the site. To date, there have been no issues concerning SOS residents and children in any of the neighborhoods we have called home, responds Chandler. Last spring, when the Colorado Village Collaborative proposed a site at a church parking lot in Park Hill, a handful of neighbors protested. Chandler's crew took special precautions at this safe outdoor spaces project. The Park Hill was the only SOS that utilized criminal background checks and sex offender screenings as part of the screening process, Chandler says. That site was unique given the fact that Park Hill United Methodist Church is also the home of a preschool. We took extra precautions at that site that were not deemed necessary at Alati Street or any other SOS location. The Park Hill site shut down last month per its lease agreement. Last I checked, homes in South Park Hill, where we were located for the last six months plus, are still pretty valuable, Chandler notes. The same goes for the Capitol Hill neighborhood we called home earlier this year. The city assessor showed that home values in those neighborhoods continued to increase year over year. I think it's safe to assume that homeowners in La Alma, Lincoln Park, will still enjoy highly valuable homes, and that the city-assessed value of those homes will rise while the SOS is active in their neighborhood. Even so, the appeal of that site's permit didn't catch Chandler off guard. I wasn't surprised by the Aladi appeal, because there was neighborhood opposition that emerged to that pretty early on. I'm encouraged that we now have executed a good neighbor agreement, says Chandler. The Steel Street site, I was totally blindsided by that appeal. There's been no community opposition whatsoever to that. The neighborhood early and often signed off on their support. That was our first ever site to open with the good neighbor agreement in place. The three appealing the Steel Street site, Michael Kennedy, Robert Reich, and Robert Manning, filed their appeal as KRMN Steel LLC, an entity that had previously expressed a desire to possibly rezone properties owned by the three individuals in the Clayton neighborhood. A representative of KRMN Steel LLC met with zoning staff in July of 2020 to discuss the possibility of a rezoning of properties along Steele, says Laura Schwartz, a spokesperson for the Denver Department of Community Planning and Development. We walked through what might be required if it was something the applicant wanted to pursue and encouraged the applicant to meet with their council office and neighbors' neighborhood organizations before submitting a formal application. To date, the City has not received a formal rezoning application from this applicant. The Steel Street appeal highlights the fact that the safe camping site has a low barrier for entry and doesn't automatically exclude those who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. The operational plan should incorporate tent checks to include searches for drugs, alcohol and weapons to ensure the residents of the encampment are living up to the policies allegedly adhered to by CVC. The appeal argues, Furthermore, the residents should submit to weekly drug and alcohol tests to ensure accountability and compliance with CVC's operational guidelines. Responds Chandler, We don't conduct drug and alcohol testing at any of our sites, nor do we require sobriety. If an individual is struggling with addiction... We first offer that person a safe place to get stable, and when they are ready, we provide access to services that can assist them in a recovery journey. Chandler reached out to the people who filed that appeal. I had never spoken to them before, he says, and they did not respond to my outreach. I'm just disappointed that we're not able to communicate as neighbors. The three individuals who filed the appeal did not respond to Westward's request for comment. These two appeals are not the first to get hearings over safe camping sites. Some Park Hill neighbors filed an appeal with the Board of Adjustment for Zoning Appeals, challenging the overall authority of Denver Zoning Administrator T- Tina Axelrad to create a temporary use for safe camping sites, which aren't listed as approved uses. The Board rejected that appeal in July in a 3-2 to two vote. In August, the board voted 3-2 to in favor of a site-specific appeal for the Park Hill location. However, since a supermajority of four votes is needed to sustain an appeal, the challenge was rejected. After that, the Park Hill group went to court over its issues with safe camping sites. That case remains pending in Denver District Court. When making the initial zoning determination, the city was careful to ensure that operators of these sites would have measures in place to provide for the safety of their guests as well as reasonably address the concerns of neighbors. We've seen the positive outcomes of this work, with the initial safe outdoor sites having worked very well, and we look forward to continuing to make these spaces available for the residents who need them, Axelrad says. After cautiously approving the safe camping site model in 2020, the administration of Mayor Michael Hancock Fully bought into the approach this year. Denver City Council had to approve the lease for the Steel Street site, since it's on city property, and the city recently earmarked $4 million for the Safe Camping Site program in 2022. We are encouraged by the fact that these sites continue to fill up quickly and serve the people that they're intending to serve and doing so in a really really powerful and effective way, Chandler says. That keeps us going in spite of a few loud voices wanting to drag us through an appeal process every time. Something's Fishy About Mask Mandate Enforcement at Downtown Aquarium by Katie Cheshire. A downtown aquarium employee got an unexpected gift this Christmas, a COVID-19 infection that she attributes to her workplace's lax enforcement of Denver's mask mandate, which was just extended to February 3rd. It's terrifying because they literally don't care, says the employee of Landry's, the massive Texas-based restaurant company that owns and operates the downtown aquarium, which started out as Colorado's ocean journey over 30 years ago, and today is an entertainment and dining complex with a full-service restaurant and bar, as well as underwater exhibits featuring 500 species. When the Denver County mask mandate was originally announced on November 24th, Management sent an email to employees saying that the aquarium would require reservations and masks, as it had at the start of the pandemic. Please do not worry about policing the policy, it advised. If you need to ask someone kindly to wear a mask and they get upset, just let it be or contact a manager. Please do not put yourself into a bad situation. But a bad situation got worse When unmasked parties arrived, says the employee, who asked to remain anonymous, citing retaliation against other workers who have spoken out, she sent emails and photographs to Westward to back up, up her statements. Even when you try to explain it to guests, they never want to believe that the rule applies to them, which really sucks, because then we're fighting on both sides and we get no support from management, she notes. On several occasions when unmasked patrons didn't respond to a request that they cover up, floor employees called management for backup, as they were instructed to do in the email. But management did not attempt to ask those patrons to put on masks or support the employee's desire to encourage masking, she says. Only four signs in the 100,000-plus square foot facility announced the mandate, including one at the entrance where people can buy tickets. After employees asked for more signage throughout the exhibit floor, the company added a sign at the Stingray Reef. It's a very small, overly worded sign that no one is going to look at, no one is going to read, because Landry's doesn't want to actually appear to be enforcing this, the employee says. The City of Denver offers resources for businesses, including pre-made signage and guidance on how to implement mask mandates. Landry's made its own. The aquarium is in compliance with the mandate at this time, with having the signs posted on all the doors. A manager emailed employees after someone complained. At this time, we made the decision to protect the staff from having to get into an uncomfortable situation by asking our staff to not actively approach guests on the subject. We don't want you to be put into a situation that turns into a confrontation. After working a shift on December 22nd, The employee went home, where she lives alone and observes what she describes as a low risk lifestyle. She stayed there until December 24th, when she started experiencing symptoms. On Christmas morning, a test confirmed a positive COVID diagnosis. This is at least the third time a floor employee has contracted COVID 19 during the course of the pandemic, the employee says. She attributes part of the problem to the company's insistence on employees making sure that their shifts are covered. A sign at the box office informs employees that they are not permitted to call in sick without a doctor's note. A positive at-home test is not sufficient. If they do, they'll get a warning, and after three warnings, they'll be fired. If they have COVID, they must use their personal sick leave or go without pay if they do not have any leave days left says the employee with COVID. According to another employee who asked to remain anonymous, she and several co-workers have reported the aquarium to OSHA's whistleblower program for unsafe COVID-19 practices several times. She says that they were told that some of their concerns fell under the purview of the Department of Labor rather than OSHA. Workers can also reach out to the city of Denver. If employees feel their employer isn't following the new public health order, PHO, face covering mandate, they can file a complaint through the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, DDPHE, website by going to the Report a Violation tab and filling out the form or by emailing their complaint with details to covidvaccine at denvergov.org, according to the city's health department. Our goal with the face-covering order is ultimately compliance, and DDPHE works with local businesses to make sure they understand what is required of them under the PHO. Complaints regarding the PHO are evaluated and investigated. A written warning, also known as an order, may be issued if DDPHE investigators find that a business is not adhering to the PHO. If compliance is still not followed after the written warning, then an administrative citation, along with a fine, may be issued. So far, the city has issued 143 orders and two citations. Each citation carries a $999 fine. No order has been issued against the downtown aquarium. Our primary concern is always for the safety of our employees and guests, Tim Callaher, vice president and COO of the aquarium, said in a statement provided to Westward. We have and will continue to follow all state and local COVID-19 guidelines at Downtown Aquarium. In addition to requiring our employees and guests to wear masks, we have mask mandate signage posted at every entry point on property. But is that enough? Aquarium management has repeatedly stated that we are not enforcing the mask policy and that it's too exhausting to try, says the employee. Unfortunately, it's also pretty exhausting to have COVID. Biden administration grants stays of removal for five immigrants living in sanctuary by Connor McCormick Kavanaugh. The Biden administration has temporarily blocked the potential deportations of five undocumented immigrants who have been living in sanctuary in Colorado churches. Neither the pandemic nor my deportation process have ended but knowing that I'm going to have a stay of removal was the best Christmas gift that will make my life less difficult, says Jeanette Visguera, who had been living in the first Unitarian society in Capitol Hill and was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in 2018. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has a general policy that agents should not enter sensitive locations, such as churches, for enforcement purposes. As a result... Some undocumented immigrants worried about being deported have taken sanctuary in such institutions across the country they include Rosa Sobido Ingrid Incalada Latore Arturo Hernandez Garcia and Sandra Lopez who are all in sanctuary at Colorado churches and have received stays of removal that block their deportations for one year Incalada Latore who was visited in 2019 by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, got word of her stay earlier in the year, as did Sabido, while the other three just recently received their notices. "'I am really surprised with the news that I have a stay of removal,' says Lopez, who has been living in a church in Carbondale. "'For me, it is like a Christmas and New Year gift,' I am very grateful and thank you very much from the bottom of my heart to all who participated in this and have made it possible. My stay in this country is now safer. Love is power and love for my family sustains me. Democrats in Colorado's congressional delegation have been pushing for years to secure stays of removal, which will allow the five individuals and in sanctuary in this state to work toward permanent immigration status without worrying about being deported. We're delighted that, following our request earlier this year, the Biden administration has chosen to grant these individuals stays of removal so that they can more fully thrive in our communities without fear of deportation, says Congressman Joe Neguse, a Democrat whose district includes the Unitarian Universalist Church of Boulder, where Incalada Latore has been living with her three children. They have lived in Colorado for decades, enriching our economy and adding value to our communities and should not have been a priority for deportation. This stay of removal will be life-changing for each of these individuals and their families, and we welcome this new chapter for each of them, Neguse adds. Under the administration of Barack Obama, some people in sanctuary received temporary stays of removal. But after Donald Trump took office, the executive branch offered no more stays. As a result, Colorado's Democratic lawmakers in Congress filed private bills on behalf of some of those living in Sanctuary, which created automatic but temporary stays. There are varying reasons that Immigration and Customs Enforcement has been trying to deport these five individuals. For example, Bisguera and Incalado Latorre have passed convictions for possessing the Social Security number of another person. In late 2019, Governor Jared Polis pardoned incoladulatory, eliminating one of the major obstacles facing the Peruvian immigrant as, she's try, as she tries to gain legal immigration status. Since your conviction, you completed your probation and paid restitution and back taxes, Polis wrote when he issued the pardon in December of 2019. You are a dedicated and caring mother to your three children. You are working to educate others on legal ways to obtain employment in the consequences of using false documents. Rohel Aguilera Medeiros resentencing hearing set for january thirteenth by Connor McCormick Kavanaugh. An official resentencing hearing for I seventy trucker Rohel Aguilera Medeiros will be held january thirteenth at the District Court in Jefferson County, in person. I'm concerned about turning this thing into a circus And it will not be a circus as far as I'm concerned. So I'm telling counsel in advance tell anyone that you're affiliated with that any outburst will result in the immediate removal of that person from the courtroom, Judge A. Bruce Jones said during a December 27th virtual scheduling hearing. On December 13th, Judge Jones had sentenced 26 year old Aguilera Medeiros to 110 years in prison for his involvement in an April 2019 crash along Interstate 70 near Colorado Mills Parkway that left four people dead. The hefty sentence came as a result of mandatory sentencing after Aguilera Medeiros was convicted on 27 of 41 counts based on charges brought forward by the First Judicial District Attorney's Office. That case was initiated by then DA Peter Weir. The office operated by his successor, Alexis King, handled the trial this fall. Since the sentence was announced, there's been significant public outcry calling for a sentence reduction. Close to 5 million people have signed a Change.org petition calling for clemency, and such celebrities as Kim Kardashian West are pleading with Governor Jared Polis to grant clemency to Aguilera Medeiros. As part of the process for all clemency applications, the administration is consulting with all the parties involved, says a Polis spokesperson. Meanwhile, state lawmakers have already promised to re-examine mandatory sentencing laws. In the midst of this outcry, King now recommends a sentence of between 20 and 30 years, she said during the virtual hearing on December 27th. This was not an accident, judge. But the judge cut off the DA with this. You can issue your press release. This is a scheduling hearing. During the hearing, Leonard Martinez, an attorney for Aguilera Medeiros, mentioned that he had spoken by phone with Polis earlier that morning. The governor's office has received a clemency application from Aguilera Medeiros, but has not indicated what Polis' next move will be. In the meantime, lawyers on both sides of the case will need to submit briefs to the courts regarding resentencing by January 10th. They'll be allowed to include letters from survivors and family members of the deceased, as well as people writing letters on behalf of Aguilera Medeiros. The judge noted that he would be willing to hear the words of victims in person, but said he'd prefer letters. The four people killed in the fiery crash were 24-year-old Denver resident Miguel Angel Lamas Arellano, Doyle Harrison, a 61-year-old from Hudson, 67-year-old and William Bailey, and Stanley Politano, a 69-year-old who was also from Arvada. Martinez and James Colgan, another attorney for aguilera Maderos, both questioned whether it was appropriate to allow victims to testify at the resentencing hearing. In response, the judge noted that state law requires that victims be granted that opportunity at resentencing. Because of the Victims' Right Act, I do think I have to hear from the victims, but I'm not requiring that they speak to me. They've already gone through the emotional tumult of the sentencing hearing on the 13th. I don't want to put anybody through that again, Judge Jones said. The lengthy sentence for Aguilera Medeiros isn't the only reason this case has generated controversy. One of the prosecutors in the case, Kayla Wildeman, bragged on Facebook about receiving a brake shoe from a semi-truck that her colleague, Trevor Moritzky turned into a memento to celebrate the conviction. The brake trophy display posted to Facebook includes Wildeman's name, the case number, and I-70 case. A significant portion of the case turned on whether Aguilera Medeiros was at fault for a crash that occurred after the brakes on his truck failed. The post was in very poor taste and does not reflect the values of my administration. We have addressed it internally, said King when asked about the trophy. She noted that the breaks in the piece were not actual evidence from the case. Denver's Glowing Reputation as Christmas Capital of the World by Patricia Calhoun On September Eve, 1914, 10-year-old David Jonathan Sturgeon was in bed at his home at 4408 West 34th Avenue in Denver, too sick to go downstairs and join his family around the Christmas tree. David Dwight D.D. Sturgeon a pioneering Denver electrician, decided to cheer up his son, so he dipped light bulbs in red and green paint, connected them to electrical wire, and hung them in a pine tree outside David's window, brightening his holiday and inspiring people from miles away to come marvel at the sight of the illuminated tree. Although there had been a few earlier outdoor decorating attempts around the country, they dimmed compared to the glowing reports provided by Denver Post reporter Pinky Wayne, and enthusiastic city boosters of a century ago were sho- soon touting this as the first illuminated outdoor Christmas tree. The next year, Sturgeon neighbors decorated their trees too, and the tradition lived on. Sadly, young David did not. He succumbed to a different illness. Denver was soon in the spotlight of a national craze. D. D. Sturgeon was dubbed the father of Yule lighting, Wayne organized the country's first outdoor lighting contest in Denver in 1918, attracting hundreds of contestants. Wayne's efforts inspired manufacturers to come up with affordable products that would work indoors and outdoors regardless of the weather, local historian Rosemary Feder reports, and as a result, electric billboards across the country began to flash with colored globes, giving rise to flashing neon signs. By 1919, the official city electrician, John Malpied, had caught the fever and replaced the lights in Denver Civic Center with colored globes of red and green for the holidays. The next year, he put an illuminated Christmas tree tree in front of the state capitol. After that, he kept scavenging for items and buildings to add to his holiday display. In 1926, Mayor Ben Stapleton gave him the okay and $400 to illuminate the front of City Hall, and by the late 1920s, Denver had become known as the Christmas capital of the world. In 1945, NBC broadcast a tribute to Denver and the Sturgeon family for having created a beautiful holiday tradition. By the time Malpied retired in 1956, Denver's fancy new city and county building was more than 20 years old, and his holiday lighting project had grown to an annual extravaganza with 17 miles of electrical wiring and 25,000 bulbs. The display spilled down the steps of the neoclassical municipal building, landing at a nativity scene, but taking several creative detours along the way. As a result, the holiday show had gotten so garish and tasteless that after Quig Newton took over as mayor in 1947, He brought in an artist to redesign it, creating a huge uproar in the process. He discovered that Denverites like things that are garish and tasteless, historian Tom Noel pointed out in 2014. Denverites aren't the only ones, of course. Holiday decorating is a multi-million dollar business, but even as people add the latest marvels, flashing icicles blow up snowmen. They remain tied to their traditions. New Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper learned that in 2004 when he suggested replacing the Merry Christmas sign at the top of the city and county building with the more inclusive Happy Holidays, which made sense not just because Denver is home to more than Christians, but also because the lighting display glows from the day after Thanksgiving through Christmas and into late January as a cheerful if over-the-top welcome for visitors to the National Western Stock Show but Hickenlooper was quickly persuaded to leave the sign alone. Over the past several days, it has become clear to me that there is strong community sentiment to maintain the Merry Christmas sign, and I am glad to oblige, he said at the time. My intention was never to disrespect or slight anyone or any religious tradition. I apologize to anyone who may have been offended or mistakenly felt I was being anti-Christmas. Hickenlooper might have two O's, but I am not Scrooge. We are happy to keep the Merry Christmas sign. There have been other changes over the years, though. During the cash-strapped 80s, the budget-busted city was going to dispense with the display until the Keep the Lights Foundation came through with enough cash to leave the lights on. Sturgeon Electric Company, the business that D.D. Sturgeon founded in 1912, has never been in the holiday lighting business itself, but it contributed to that campaign. Today, it's a large industrial construction company responsible for a lot of the power lines across the country. Although it's now a subsidiary of a holding company, it continues to be based in Colorado, in Henderson. The Denver City and County building display is now safely back in the city budget, and a few years ago, all of those bulbs were replaced with LED lights that are not only more energy efficient, they use only a third of the energy of previous years, but allow for the colors to be changed with the flick of a switch, creating those recent celebrations of pink, purple, red, and, of course, orange and blue causes. But it's what's below the lights, the nativity scene on the steps, that has always created the most controversy. In order to keep church and state separate, over the years Denver has added a number of non-religious figures to the display, including giant nutcrackers, reindeer, candy canes, Santa's workshop. But even so, in 1981, four individuals who described themselves as tax paying non Christians filed a complaint in Denver District Court alleging that the nativity scene erected on city property and funded through tax revenues was a violation of their rights. They asked that Denver not only be prohibited from displaying the scene, but forced to sell it at public auction. The case went to trial in 1982 when aptly named historian Noel talked about virgin birth, and then-Mayor William McNichols testified that he'd received thousands of letters concerning the display, which generated a feeling of goodwill that is rarely matched during the rest of the year. Ultimately, the court determined that Denver's nativity scene did not violate Article Two, Section 4 of the Colorado Constitution, the so-called Preference Clause, which states that no preference shall be given by law to any religious denomination or mode of worship. And four years later, in September of 1986, the Colorado Supreme Court concurred. Considered in the context of the larger display, the judges ruled, the Denver Nativity scene does not violate the Preference Clause of the Colorado Constitution. In the four decades since that ruling, The Colorado Supreme Court's position has only been strengthened by U.S. Supreme Court decisions, and the addition of even more junk to the display has helped, too. Consider it the Santa Claus. While it may insult aesthetics, it keeps Colorado constitutional. To combat the filching of the baby Jesus by radio pranksters, not cranky atheists, the nativity scene is now covered in glass, like a square snow globe. At some pivotal point now lost to history, Santa's workshop was replaced with a workshop full of country music elves. The Nutcrackers surrendered to old age. But angels on high still oversee the action. Let there be light. Nisi's to Reopen in Bigger, Better Location Next Spring by John Solomon Lafayette venue and restaurant Nisi's opened in 2006, An entrepreneur Mark Gitlin took it over three years later. But in early 2020, Gitlin couldn't come to an agreement for a lease extension, so he started scouting for other locations and found a building at Lafayette Crossings, which he says was vacant for 13 years. On the afternoon of March 12, 2020, Gitlin reached an agreement with the new landlords on all the provisions of the lease, and that night... We went for dinner in downtown Boulder, Gitlin says. My wife and I toasted to it. We came home, and Tom Hanks made his announcement that he had COVID, and the whole world changed. I never did sign that lease. And, of course, they never renewed my old lease. I was caught in the vortex between two leases, which is good, but I was also devastated that I thought I was done until the vaccine came, he continues. I didn't have the terrible consequences a lot of people had, but I also had lost my livelihood. Gitlin stayed in touch with the landlord, and once the vaccine was widely distributed, he applied for a Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, part of $16 billion in grants administered by the Small Business Administration's Office of Disaster Assistance. The grant has made it possible for him to reopen at the new 1455 Coal Creek Drive location in the spring of 2022. The new space which is about three times bigger than Nisi's previous location, is currently being renovated, and Gitlin says there's there's a lot of work to be done, as the kitchen, stage, and sound booth all need to be updated and cleaned up. While the capacity at the new location is 500, standing, Gitlin says it can seat around 400 people. My old place had more of a supper club feel, but this place will be more of a concert venue, Gitlin says. I'll be able to have more national acts come through. I used to do a lot of cover band, tribute bands, and jazz nights, blues. I was all over the place. I'm still going to be, but now I could bring in bigger acts with bigger followings and be able to combine them. That's exciting. Gitlin says the previous Niecy's location had kind of a sophisticated urban feel to it, particularly for being in Lafayette. My biggest compliment was always, what a cool place for Lafayette, he recalls, This new place will also be a very upscale music venue versus a lot of places you see around town. When live music does return to Niecy's, Gitlin says, he'll start off with some national tribute acts and maybe some popular jam and funk bands, as the previous spot generally appealed to an older demographic, around ages 40 to 60. I'll probably still do a lot of that, he says, but I'm open to whatever is successful in the space. I want people to feel comfortable. That's why I had more mature crowds. You get seating as opposed to standing all night. For more information, visit nieces.com. Dirk's Bentley's Whiskey Row opens New Year's Eve by John Solomon. Nearly a year ago, construction started on Dirk's Bent- Bentley's Whiskey Row at 1946 Market Street, a block from Coors Field. The Country Stars Bar and Venue, which will host live music five nights a week and DJs Thursdays through Sundays, is set to celebrate its grand opening on New Year's Eve. The former home of Lodo's Bar and Grill underwent major renovations. The 22,000-square-foot finished location comprises two existing buildings, including a 6,000-square-foot addition. There's a state-of-the-art sound system with tour-grade components, a stage for live music with a 65-foot immersive LED wall and a large outdoor patio with lawn games. Whiskey Row also serves Southern-inspired food and signature cocktails. I spend a lot of time in Colorado, so it was definitely the most fitting next spot for Whiskey Row, Bentley said in a statement. The neighborhood is a great vibe for experiencing Denver, whether you're a local or a tourist. And I can't wait until I get to be back there and have a cold one in the Mile High City at my very own place. The Denver Whiskey Row marks the brand's fifth location. The Phoenix-based Bentley has also opened locations in Arizona and Nashville. The project is part of a joint venture between Denver-based Montfort Companies and Iconic Investments and Scottsdale, Arizona-based Riot Hospitality Group. We are extremely proud to be opening this exciting venue in Denver, Riot Hospitality Group CEO Ryan Hibbert said in a statement. Having partners like Montfort Companies and Iconic Investments has made this an incredibly strong project. We are looking forward to becoming woven into the fabric of the Denver lifestyle and becoming great neighbors in the Lodo District. The grand opening New Year's Eve party starts at 9 p.m. Friday, December 31st. Nashville-based musician Stephen Paul and his band will play from 9 to 10 p.m., and long-standing Whiskey Row DJ Christopher Gray will provide the entertainment from 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. The venue will adhere to local restaurant and event COVID-19 guidelines, including checking vaccination status at the door to ensure the safety of guests and staff. For guaranteed entrance, guests can reserve a VIP table on the website. Following the grand opening, Whiskey Row hours will be 3 to 10 p.m. Tuesday and Wednesday, 3 p.m. to 2 a.m. Thursday, 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. Friday, 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. Sunday. For more information, visit dirkswhiskeyrow.com slash Denver. My Morning Jacket Cancels Mission Ballroom Run by Westward Staff. If you thought 2021 sucked, You're going to double down on that sentiment if you have tickets to the My Morning Jacket run that had been scheduled for the Mission Ballroom for Wednesday, December 29th through Friday, December 31st. Due to the rise of the Omicron variant, the band announced on December 23rd that it has made the deeply painful decision to cancel the New Year's Eve series. Refunds will be generated automatically from the ticket purchasing outlets. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell.